as you venture west of Birmingham in the Ladywood district, you may find one of the city's hidden gems, the Edge Baston Reservoir. In this natural reserve stands a derelict building covered in graffiti, once known as the Tower Ballroom. Before its closure in 2017, this venue has seen 141 years of music, dance, cuisine, sports and romance played out in the most exuberant manner and forging the tower in the hearts of Bromies throughout the generations. The current plan coveted by the council is to demolish this beloved building and turn it into housing, a controversial idea for the natural reserve and a piece of local heritage. Following the production of two films celebrating its past and at times imagined future, this podcast aims to focus on the present and ponders the question, what spaces do we really want? Katie Kershaw is a Ladywood resident and a passionate boxer. Uses her experience as an urban planner to reflect on the case of the tower and explore the sustainable prospects of an environment and community-friendly city. Interview by Leita Turner with participation of Stephen Stanley. Can I ask what got you into boxing? It was funny, it was a time of my life in my early 20s, I'd just started mm-hmm. work and I think I was kind of at that phase where I was kind of going to the gym and there wasn't really any kind of direction in terms of the activity that I was doing, although I'd always liked being active when I was at school. And my husband actually had done a charity boxing fight, a white collar boxing yeah. fight, and I saw it and I thought, I've always liked boxing. I reckon I could do this. And I actually just went down to the gym with him one night and just said, do you mind if I come and give it a go? And um, yeah, took it from there. And initially there weren't many other women that were yeah. doing it. I mean, this was early 2000s. And, you know, boxer size and stuff like that, I don't think had really been that popular by that point. So there weren't many other women in the gym. So it was a bit bit of a, an odd one. But yeah, I just got, got hooked on it. Just the, the sort of pure adrenaline. And it's what actually we know now as HIIT training, high intensity training that's become so kind of all the rage but actually boxers have known this for years and that's why their fitness is just really probably quite unsurpassed by other Mm. kind of people in the fitness industry I really enjoyed it could you say what your favorite part of boxing was my favorite element of it was pad work so I absolutely loved that it's a one-on-one session where you've got a a trainer holding pads and you have to then basically make it punch those pads Mm. so they'll call out combinations and you put those together it's just such a release it's such hard work so you only need to do a few kind of two minute rounds of it and you're absolutely blowing but it's just yeah you you know you are totally in the moment when you're doing it you're not thinking about work you're not thinking about any of your worries and all those frustrations that you might come into the gym with are just out the door yes did you ever think about competing well again back then there weren't actually many women boxing so whilst there was sparring at the gym it was all male Eventually, as I got further down the line, I did spar with some men, which was interesting. I think to begin with, they gave me a bit of an easy ride. And then when I hit them on the nose a little bit, they, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't keep it that easy. Eventually, other women did start sparring and I did do a couple of sessions. And to be honest with you, I found it a bit odd. 
I just didn't quite hitting a man seemed to be a lot easier to me than hitting another woman but that's not to to I mean I'm absolutely so passionately for women's boxing I watch it you know my favorite boxer is actually Katie Taylor a female Irish fighter she is amazing mm-hmm. totally for it it just didn't suit me as a person yeah. just so for me it was all about the the training and occasionally punching a man on the nose <laughs> yeah did you ever go to the towel ballroom and what did you do in it like what did you use the space for I have been to the tower ballroom. I've obviously used the reservoir extensively mm-hmm. uh, over the years as a kind of recreational space, somewhere to walk, somewhere to run frequently. But actually, in terms of accessing the building, I've actually only been there once, but it was it was really memorable. It was watching a close friend of mine who was a boxer who was really on the way up. And it was a boxing event that was boxes from across the Midlands. And yeah, it was watching him sort of going there and it was his first big event which he won which kind of set him on the pathway to kind of getting signed by a promoter and really sort of making his mark as a sports person. Do you remember the environment how it was when you went there? Yes I do in all honesty it felt quite tired by that point I try and think about what year it would have been it must have been kind of around 20. 10 perhaps something like that and it did feel like a space that needed caring for obviously you know the the stories about what it's housed over the years are just incredible and some of the imagery that i've seen of it is phenomenal Mm -hmm. but by that point it did feel it was very dark which is obviously helpful for boxing you know you want that kind of cauldron like environment so it was definitely able to provide that but yeah i remember thinking gosh there needs to be some investment here you know it's Mm -hmm. such a an interesting place with such a kind of vibrant history and it definitely felt that the way that it was being managed didn't necessarily reflect that. Did you ever hear any stories about it before first going there or being involved with this project specifically? I had heard stories about it actually it'd been it was one of those places I think even when I was first used to go out a lot on the club scene and even I think when I was going out and other clubs in Birmingham were still hosting events so it would have been 90s and I heard about some of the amazing music gigs and bands that have actually played there I think by that point they were having over 30s nights and stuff like that so at the time there was a clear distinction between the types of people that went to nightclubs and I think that was the sort of things that they, they were hosting there then but yeah certainly not the kind of huge great big events that we know that they've sort of hosted in the past how do you feel about hearing that it's going to be turned into household i mean it's uh it's a difficult thing i personally believe that you know regeneration of the the sort of wider reservoir area is is actually not only possible but also a good thing you know that there are definite opportunities around there to provide you know additional housing Mm -hmm. to provide other uses actually i mean you know, accessible sort of toilets, changing space, a cafe, those sorts of things that would really enhance the wider environment's use as a community asset. You know, it's you've only got to look at the numbers of people that are there every day and that there aren't accessible toilets, for example, just seems to be completely mad to me. But in terms of that building and its relationship with the the reservoir, I don't necessarily think that that is the right place for that sort of development and certainly not in the form that I've seen. That's my take on it. If you had like unlimited amounts of money, what would you do with that space? I personally think that that space would be 
best used as a mixed sporting centre with mm. opportunities for all types of community use as well. So it's not just for the, the preserve of those that want to kind of, you know, sail, which yeah. let's be honest is a fairly kind of privileged sport, albeit they do make some great steps to get the, the community involved. Yeah, I think there's the opportunity really to think about I always thought that as a Commonwealth Games legacy project, it could be an ideal location for that. You think about the multitude of activities that can take place, both around the reservoir, within the reservoir. Don't get me started on swimming in the reservoir, because as, a, as an outdoor swimmer myself, living 400 metres from the reservoir, I have to get in the car if I want, and, and drive a long way yeah. if I want to go outdoor swimming. And that just seems mad to me, because swimming is just one of the most positive things that anybody can do for themselves there's a place that i go to fairly frequently the national water sports center in nottingham the host of activities that they've got there are phenomenal and the the groups of people they've got access in that space is so diverse it just seems to me that that would be a really great kind of precedent for something that could be done there and you know i I work in development i understand that new development needs to pay for itself Mm. i understand the need for it to be commercially viable and i think that there are opportunities to deliver something there that are commercially viable but just in a different way you said you've worked in this sort of line before what do you think a community space should hold and what do you think that the tower had that attracted so many people to it Well, I think music is a great sort of, it brings people together and it creates powerful shared experiences. So I think a lot of the people, when they reflect back on their own use, and sadly, as I say, I didn't get to go to a gig there, but when I think back on those venues where I have seen my favourite bands, there's a real powerful thing about that experience and the place that you're in. You associate, it's almost like smell, those kind of Mm. like associations. So I think those memories that people have of the space are probably one of its key kind of values and obviously losing losing the physicality of the building you know a lot of people feel that that's been taken away I know myself from some of the great venues that I've been to over the years when they've been gone and inevitably redeveloped flats that just seems to be the way of things particularly in city centre context understandably so it's a strange old thing walking you know past somewhere that you used to go and have the time of your life and seeing that actually it's sort of this fairly dormant kind of feel now and I really wouldn't wish that for the tower particularly in the context of its sort of wider environment and its relationship with the reservoir. Why do you think that is? Why do you think so many creative spaces have been just turned into flats and commercial houses? Land, land values, mm. yeah, land values is, is probably the key one. I mean, there are other sort of aspects of play as well and the rejuvenation of towns and city centres. England's a bit of an odd one when it comes to mix of uses in, in centres. Actually, compared with a lot of European cities, we don't have as much residential accommodation and that does affect the sort of feel and the vibrancy of spaces at night so I'm totally not against trying to get more residential use into towns and cities it's actually one of the key ways coming out of the pandemic particularly that we're going to be able to re-enliven urban spaces you think about the impact that there's been on retail and things like that so we do need to get more people living in those spaces but unfortunately creative spaces are often the victims of rising land values probably the best local example is around Digbeth and how, I mean, it's been growing in its sort of attraction over the last, well, probably 20, maybe even 30 years. But the acceleration of that in line with the arrival of HS2 and obviously some of the great things that we're seeing around creative industries that are coming into Digbeth, there are going to be smaller scale places that are going to end up being lost as, as a result of that. And evening entertainment, nightlife, 
they can often be the victims of a sort of secondary impact, which is when you do get people living in those spaces, mm. issues around noise. So the number of nightclubs that have ended up closed because of noise complaints from residents who moved in after the venue was yeah. already in operation, which I always think is a bit of a nonsensical argument. You wanted to live next to a nightclub. <laughs> Why are you complaining so, about noise? Yeah, I mean, it's a complex issue, but I think probably land values and sort of the people that own property and the people that use property are often not the same, particularly in the sort of smaller scale creative yeah. industries. Would you like to explain more of what you do? I'm an urban designer and a heritage consultant. Basically what that means is I design new places and I also look at the regeneration of existing places and particularly with the, um, when I'm thinking about the heritage consultancy, it's around looking at things like historic areas, mm-hmm. conservation areas, listed buildings. So it's how we can kind of make positive futures for existing places as well as creating new ones. You've mentioned regeneration a lot. Could you explain what that is? Regeneration, well, my my interpretation of regeneration is where you have an existing environment which potentially isn't perhaps performing in the way that it's not achieving its best possible kind of goal. And when I sort of work in those projects, it's around trying to work with the community, wider stakeholders to understand what actually is the best possible solution and then how can we put in place steps to get there. So it's not always about kind of just washing away, you know, all those good things that are there. It's about how can we draw those out, but actually make a sustainable future where, you know, the people that are already kind of in that environment are able to kind of achieve their goals. But equally, it may be that other people get to kind of join in as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually just the way that towns and cities grow and morph over the years. Do you have any examples of places where you've helped with regeneration? The company that I work for and mm. the, the places that I've worked over the years, we've worked in a number of kind of towns and cities across the UK. So we've had projects in Birmingham. We've had, we had a really quite interesting project look, looking at the whole of Worcester as a city. It was quite, it was a sort of classic urban design project because we were thinking broadly about the city as a whole and how we can better connect it. But then we were also thinking at the site level about how, you know, individual places may not be achieving what they can i mean key example there and this is where i think you know regeneration is really powerful you know we had a multitude of surface car parks for example and you have people sort of driving from around these small scale kind of very fragmented surface car parks one to the other to the other because there wasn't really a unified approach to the way that you would park in the city and public transport was poor and so there we were looking at how can we find new futures for these car parks where they're actually contributing something much more powerful whether it is actually community space or whether it's new development and then actually how can we give people the right public transport and pedestrian and cycle connections where they don't feel that they do need to drive but then when they do let's give them a car park that actually stops them from polluting the whole of the city centre by driving from one place to the other yeah so that's kind of one example of where looking at the city as a whole is really powerful and it plays into how you think about the regeneration of small-scale individual sites it's very interesting it's a great thing to be involved with if you had to think about ladywood in that way or birmingham as a whole how do you think the tower could be i know you said spaces for mixed sports and stuff do you think that's actually possible do you think that's viable or do you think it would it's just like a dream I think it is commercially possible. I think 
the key thing there would be around the mix of uses that you would get within there and the sort of diversity of groups that you could actually get to access the space. So I think actually having a sort of a, a number of different operators within the environment and operating at different times of the day as well, rather yeah. than just thinking about how can we, how do we subdivide a physical space into, okay, so you do this here, you do this here. It's thinking about what times of the day people can do things. Yeah. So obviously, historically, it's worked as a music venue, very much a nighttime activity. But those sorts of spaces at large, open plan, with toilets, with bar facilities, they provide fantastic community spaces for yeah. daytime events as well. So it would be around not just designing, but curating the, the space from, from day to night as well. So it would take, I mean, you know, it's not easy. It really isn't. But you think about the catchment that the tower has in terms of the number of people that live within, you know, let's call it a 10 to 15 minute walk. And even further, when you think about actually it is accessible from the city centre, there's plenty of opportunities to be able to deliver something really quite uh, creative and meaningful within that site, I believe, that then plays into the wider environment of the reservoir as well. Do you think there's many spaces like that in Birmingham? Not, not in my experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, some of the aspects are, are done very well at certain places. The MAC is a really good example of that. Yeah. So Cannon Hill Park, you've got a really great multifunctional arts facility there. So where you can do courses, you can do some, I mean, done some great courses there over the years. Mm-hmm. But equally, you can go and watch comedy, there's live music. There's a cafe there permanently, which is obviously creating this constant supply of you know revenue basically so they've thought there about how they can sort of provide for again a really broad catchment of people that come and access Mm. Cannon Hill Park but I think with the reservoir the additional sporting component would be really powerful given its sort of proximity to the water. The challenge that Birmingham is that it's such a big city yeah. that it's quite hard to conceptualise the entire space and they did try to do it so they created back in 2010 the big city plan which looked at the city as a whole and divided it down into various quarters and those quarters would then basically be developed to up in more detail in terms mm-hmm. of their master plans but the idea being that they would all reference back up into this wider city strategy and now the city council has created something called Our Future City Plan. It sort of revisits some of the ideas within that and brings it forward and thinks about basically how are people going to be living in 2040, you know, mm. and what are going to be the, the sort of impacts of climate change and things like that and what we can do within the city to, to sort of respond to that. That's an interesting document, definitely worth kind of reflecting on. The, the Worcester example, you know, it is... Obviously, it's a big space to be considering, but it is it is a bit easier to conceptualise, even as a city, than somewhere as huge and as sort of wide-ranging, really, as Birmingham. And there's so... The highways challenges in Birmingham are so strong in terms of the, the ring road and the A38 and the connections with the, the motorway. So it, it's a challenging old, old place, Birmingham, but we love it. Do you think because of the legacy of the industrial backdrop of Birmingham makes it so difficult? Because everything was thought out more industrial, than say other countries across Europe. They've got kind of a city centre is more of a recreational kind of aspect spin on. I do, I do. So certainly what happened to Birmingham in the aftermath of the war, so both in terms of the wartime destruction and the way that it was cleared, and then the fact that that was used as a mean opportunistically basically to create the ring road. So we've got what's called the middle way around the, the city centre. Mm. But it essentially creates a, an island and it's, you know, there have been uh, measures taken to try and punch through that. In your line of work, urban yeah. planning, do you think people use the environment that they're given or do you think that 
more often than not they would like tear it down and just start afresh i mean it varies hugely the brief that we're given can be anything from i want to lovingly preserve what we have here and i want to make the best out of it to show me a way that i can maximize this site and that might mean getting rid of this you know whether it's a building or whether it's a landscape it's a difficult task when when somebody brings that to you to to try and kind of I suppose educate and you know inform about what is important and what is mm-hmm. what we call in heritage terms significant about a site or a place but it's something that we'll always try to do to to actually kind of stay true to our own sort of integrity and kind of bring the best out of it but yeah unfortunately there isn't a a sort of general approach developers are often tarred as being kind of so profit driven that they're willing to throw everything away and that is certainly not the case in all the the people that I I work with there are plenty of people out there that do want to do what's best by what they have actually there are some real issues around conservation of existing building stock for example we think about climate change we think about the, the creation of environments to live in which are sometimes at odds with the preservation of everything in its existing kind of the, the historic fabric of a building for example so there are some real challenges around finding a compromised position between the kind of needs of a changing environment and preserving heritage so for example the case of the tower you know, we know that there's some interesting historic fabric within that building and sort of finding out how best to draw that out and bring that to the fore as well as incorporating new elements of, yeah. uh, you know, the, the best in sort of sustainable architecture, you know, would be a great way of finding a kind of a marriage point between those two things. And I think with the tower, I've heard quite a lot of people talk about if they were to completely knock it down, it would have damaging amounts of co2 trapped in it because i think how old buildings are made yeah well we we talk about embedded carbon so you know essentially when you knock something down and you turn it to rubble you know you've immediately got a waste product haven't you so all of the effort that went into the manufacturing of those materials Mm -hmm. and the actual man the, the sort of construction of the building is essentially lost and you've also got this waste product which needs to often be and particularly in a building of that scale taken off site and there's the carbon cost associated with that so increasingly now there is a view that we do need to be thinking more about repurposing and that where once there was a very much a kind of let's start again you know and deal with the consequences mm-hmm. people are definitely much more amenable to looking at it might not mean preserving it in its entirety it might mean you know keeping this the superstructure and dealing with what's going on inside you know particularly around getting more light in thinking about how new technology can be utilized within existing buildings to make them more hospitable and actually more sustainable but actually where there are opportunities to keep those you know the, the much the weightier elements of buildings it's it's definitely for for the better do you think increased awareness of global warming and climate change has allowed people to think more about those aspects Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think people that work in certainly in my sort of area, you know, thinking about future planning, thinking about the environment, we're definitely under no illusions about whether climate change is real and what the impacts are and the fact that, you know, where once we were talking about it, about preventing it, we're now dealing with it and we need to be thinking about how actually we can find ways to actually put back to improve the situation, not just to keep it the same. And that is that is a challenge. Where do you think planning is going in the future? Like with global warming and everything that's come to light and people are so aware of it now, where do you think it's moving to? Well, I think the climate change agenda is definitely, that has to be the core kind of focus for everybody involved in in future development. And, you know, as I say, where once we were thinking about 
it's actually being something in the future it is definitely happening now so it's finding ways that what we can actually do will try to give back to the environment so you know the intense rain that we've just heard that we've been experiencing more and more that often follows periods of droughts where the the ground is very hard and what happens then is you get overland flow which creates flooding so we seem to be veering between these kind of wild cycles of drought, extreme rain, extreme heat, and then flooding. So thinking about de- in development terms, one of the key issues over the past few years has been around where housing, for example, has been built in mm. floodplain. There's real increased awareness around this. Whilst there's a raft of policies and building in these areas of, of flood risk, but the reality is they have not been successful. So thinking about elements like that, thinking about how we can become much more energy resilient. You know, we've only got to look at what's happened in terms of the availability of Russian gas to see that we are very, very reliant still on these sort of ever-diminishing resources. Mm. And, you know, there's still not, for me, a strong enough strategy on how we can use renewables. We're an island nation. Just thinking about Great Britain here, we have so many opportunities, so many untapped resources and for me, that would be my, if I were thinking about planning at a sort of national level, that would be where I'd be starting right now, thinking about how we could have a nationalised energy strategy that looks at renewables. you for listening to this episode of amplifying voices don't hesitate to send us your reaction and comments either on instagram at birds associates or by email that is admin at birdsassociates.net a birds associates podcast produced by the children of the diaspora find out more on our website birdsassociates.net